take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Lord willing, we will be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The passage before us this morning is is one of the more well-known passages in the New Testament. And as one author put it, one of the most unusual. Most of the time when this text is discussed, it's about the first four or five verses. Paul's rapture up to the third heaven and little about the rest of the section. I hope we can make better sense of it this morning as we look at the entire text as a whole, verses 1 through 10. Now let me just remind you, we are in the middle of a boastful defense on the part of the Apostle Paul. He loathed boasting, remember that. But he had to employ boasting to overcome the charges leveled against him by false teachers, men that had infiltrated the church at Corinth and had won at least a considerable enough following for Paul to pen four chapters addressing them and their followers. These men, these pseudo-apostles, they looked the part. They sounded the part. They were expert showmen. But they were preaching another Jesus. They were preaching a different gospel. Paul says in chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, that they were servants of Satan himself. That's based on the authority of Scripture. Nevertheless, they had established a standard for what successful ministry looked like. And somehow, 
to this group that Paul had spent some 18 months with, somehow they had convinced at least a few in the church at Corinth that since they met the standard that they had established, they were true apostles. And Paul was not. They claimed to possess authority that Paul did not possess. They claimed to have knowledge that Paul did not have. And being the expert showmen that they were, they had won the hearts of many within the church there in Corinth. Well, Paul, in this section that we're looking at, has set his mind to beat them at their own game, boasting, even though he detested it. But he's gone about it differently than they. I, I would think as a surprise to them. They were boasting in their accomplishments and Paul was boasting in his hardships. And even as we saw last week, in his weaknesses. I mean, following a somewhat shocking list of hardships from hunger and thirst to public beatings at the hands of both Jew and Gentile, Paul then shares this story of him fleeing persecution in Damascus by being lowered down in a basket through a window on the wall. It was, it was not Paul's finest hour. He was not proud of it. And he clearly looked back at it as a time of great humiliation. Nevertheless, it is Paul's moment of admitted weakness that leads him directly into this section we are looking at this morning as, as Paul explains how God actually works through weak vessels. The name of the sermon is Power in Weakness, taken straight from the text, of course. In this passage, Paul relates how God actually gave him this thorn in the flesh to enable him to rely on God's help even more to strengthen him, to mature him. All right, let's work through this and see what we might be able to glean. He begins here in verse 1 saying, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And I think you can, if you've been with us for some time, you can almost feel the reluctance as Paul writes these words, I must go on Boasting. I mean, this is, this is not the real Paul, right? This is, he hates this. He doesn't go around boasting in all of his experiences, bragging about his authority and things like that. Paul just wants to preach Jesus, and he wants to, to mature the saints, mature those who believe. I mean, look down at verse 11, what he says after this section. He says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. You see, Paul is not wanting to boast about this. That's how Paul feels about this self-commendation. It is foolish, something he wouldn't have done had he not been pushed. But he has been pushed to this boasting, and so he then must go on. Now, all through this section, Paul has been answering the, the brags of the false teachers, and I'm certain he's doing more of the same in this text we are looking at this morning. Without question, at least in my own mind, these men bragged of 
ecstatic experiences, dreams, visions, those type things. Some type of special connection to God that puny little Christians did not have. They received information apart from Scripture, directly from God. These were their boasts. And we know that the church in Corinth desired these type of things. I mean, back in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul wrote to them, scolding them, saying, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? He goes on to say, Let all things be done for building up. If you recall, that chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, is far from a commendation. It is a correction. They were caught up in these things. The church in Corinth, they were caught up with these supernatural, ecstatic type experiences. And so these false teachers came into fertile ground. They came into a place where these things were desired because the church had this unhealthy craving for these things. Well, Paul is reluctant to share his own experience. He actually says, this is pretty, pretty amazing actually, he actually says here, there is nothing to be gained by it. That's significant. It's really quite a statement, especially considering the landscape of Christianity in America today. I mean, by the authority of Scripture, there is nothing to be gained by Paul sharing his visions and revelations of the Lord. Nothing to be gained. And yet there is this huge segment of Christendom in America longing to hear of just such things. I don't believe they would like Paul very much. Why is there nothing to be gained by a man relating such personal ecstatic experiences. Well, I, I think I can think of a few things. First, it will cause someone to have way too much confidence in a man and not nearly as much in God Himself. When man gets the high view and God gets the low view, something's off. You just watch Benny Hinn wave his jacket around a coliseum of people who are willing to do the Holy Spirit wave. That will tell you that there's something desperately wrong. Secondly, experiences are subjective. They're not verifiable. I mean, even what Paul will relate here, someone could have easily said, I just don't believe that happened. And at that point, it's just Paul's word against theirs. These things are subjective. They're not verifiable. Thirdly, listen, in every group that relies on extra-biblical revelation, every one, from Pentecostal to Babdecostal, the view of Scripture is lowered and the experiences that we live become heightened. Jacob actually literally just addressed this very thing there at the end of his good sermon. Listen, Scripture has to be held up high and our experiences add nothing to what God has revealed to us. He's told us everything He wants us to know. So again, on the authority of the inspired text, there is nothing to be gained by what Paul is about to share. By the way, you'd think that would be sufficient to, serve, to, to, to curb some of the crazy things going on in the religious world today, but it isn't. 
It isn't. Perhaps we as, as a Christian generation have exposed that we simply do not know our Bibles very well. Anyway, the question is, why does Paul engage in this? Why does, why does he boast in a vision when he knows that there's no benefit to it? To put it bluntly, to beat the false teachers at their own game. The souls in Corinth were at risk, and Paul had an experience here that none of these false teachers could trump. This trumped anything that they had experienced. Notice verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up in a paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which men may not utter. Fourteen years And it seems Paul has not said the first peep about this to anybody. This is the first time. We know he was with the saints in Corinth for better than a year and a half, and they did not hear about this. Listen, I think if this happened to Todd Bryant, you'd all get a text before the night was over, right? I mean, but it's likely Paul would have taken it with him to the grave if he was not forced to share it here. Okay, 14 years actually places this before Paul's first missionary journey, but it's well after his conversion experience. It's really in that time of Paul's ministry we don't know a whole lot about. Luke does not write about it. Everything we know about this we find right here in 2 Corinthians. And honestly, we do not learn very much here. Now I'm sure you noticed as we read through this, Paul uses the third person, I know a man. Well, he, he's, he's not speaking directly about himself, but this is just a literary device on Paul's part. The text is going to bear out very clearly that it is in fact Paul who had this experience. It is Paul who was carried up into the third heaven. And really, if you just take a moment and think about it, little sense would be made if he was talking about some other guy to answer the brags and boasts of the false teachers against him. I mean, that that wouldn't work at all. This is clearly about Paul relating his own trip to heaven. I assume, though I, I have nothing to base this on but the text, but I assume that Paul is using this third-person approach here to divert attention away from himself and to keep it on the Lord. I think the text will bear that out. I mean, Paul has been crystal clear that his desire is to boast in God. And so speaking of himself here as a man makes good sense. Oh, and by the way, I, I don't have time to get into all of this, but don't let this slip you by that Paul refers to himself as a man in Christ. A man in Christ. This is a very common way for Paul to refer to believers. Men, women in Christ. We are in Christ. There is is great safety in that. In Christ... We are saved from God's wrath, right? In Christ, we are eternally secure. 
In Christ, we are justified in God's sight. All of that because we are in Christ. There's sort of a, a rich little nugget there when Paul says he was a man in Christ. Anyway, Paul says this man was caught up to the third heaven, which he equates with paradise in Verse 3, the Greek word here translated paradise is only used three times in the New Testament. Once here and two other times. You know these probably. Luke 23, 43, Jesus turns to the converted thief on the cross and He says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Same exact word. Revelation 2, 7 there's this letter to the church in Ephesus, and at the very end of it, Jesus says to that church, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So clearly then, Paul was caught up to the place where God dwells. We might rightly say, to God's heavenly throne room. He was there... But he doesn't know if it was only his spirit that was there or if he was there bodily. He doesn't know. He says this twice, probably for emphasis. Now, other than that, Paul does not give us very much about this experience. This experience was not for the Corinthian saints. It was not for us. It was for Paul's benefit. And I'm sure that the benefit that Paul had here was to encourage him as he faced all the hardships and persecutions that we looked at in the previous section. Paul simply says, he heard things that cannot be told. We might translate that, he heard inexpressible things, things that cannot be put into words. I thought D.A. Carson had a decent parallel he said for Paul to explain heaven to other humans would be like you and me trying to explain electricity to someone in the Stone Age. Now just think about that. What words would you use? I mean, every word that you could possibly use to explain electricity to someone in the Stone Age, they wouldn't know. Well, it's sort of that way here. There are no words to express what Paul saw. <coughs> But it's not only that he heard inexpressible things, it's that he heard things that man may not utter, or, or we might say that no one is permitted to tell. So even if Paul could put the words together, God disallowed him from sharing it. That does a lot of damage to claims today. Because somebody's going to heaven every other train trip. There's a lot of folks in the Christian community that have the door wide open to hear someone get in the pulpit and talk to them about their trip to heaven and back. Some of you may recall in, in 2010, Todd Blurpo, real name, wrote a book, Heaven is for Real. He claims that his son Colton visited heaven where he received a halo and actual wings that he said were too little. I guess heaven's embroidery department needs some fixing, right? 
He claims to have sat on Jesus' lap. He saw Mary standing beside Jesus. And if that was not bizarre enough for you, he met the Holy Spirit who he said was blue. Same year, 2010, a pastor by the name of Kevin Malarkey, which I'll tell anybody in Alabama that there's something wrong coming. He published a book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, claiming that his son, Alex, visited heaven after a terrible automobile accident. Listen, many people, Christian people, ate these books up. Heaven is for real soul, 10 million plus copies. Inspired a movie that made over 100 million The boy who came back from heaven sold over a million copies. Listen, Christian people, Bible in hand, took these books in and all the while Paul said when he went to heaven, an apostle, mind you, who penned 13 books of the New Testament, he heard things that no one is permitted to tell. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Paul? Or these children? There's a bunch of other books, by the way. That's just a couple. By the way, for what it's worth, I am glad to report that Alex Malarkey, the the son of the pastor there, has since recanted his story with a very strong, well-worded statement. Here's what he said, quote, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible." Well, praise the Lord for that. That is a great admission on his part and 100% accurate. But while I am thankful for Alex's honesty, Christian people should have known better out of the gate. Listen, Paul's clear here in this statement. No one is permitted to go to heaven and then explain everything about it. If Paul wasn't, a six-year-old's not going to be able to. Well, that was a bit of a rabbit chase. I I hope we caught it. I thought it was worth it. The point here, though, in these first four verses is that Paul's experience trumped any claim that the false apostles, the false apostles could have ever made. But he had not bragged about it. In fact, he had not even mentioned it for 14 years. And only now, when he's forced to, does he bring it up. But that's not all he says. Here's why. Notice in verse 5. On behalf of this man... I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. This lets us know for sure that Paul was in fact the man that he's been talking about in the first four verses. Nevertheless, he's still speaking in the third person. On behalf of this man, I will boast. So as long as he keeps it in the third person, he's not directly boasting in his own experience. He says, but on my own behalf, I will not boast. Paul is not willing to preach Paul. 
Period. He is not. He is going to preach Jesus. He is going to boast in the work of Christ alone. Guys, listen, this is our example. We need to learn from this. We just sang about it a second ago. We need to put that into action. When ministry becomes about validating ourselves and invalidating all others, whose side are we on in this text here? It's obvious. And I'll give you a hint. It's not Paul. (laughs) It's not Paul's side that we're on. Now again, Paul clearly points out that he is the man. He, he writes here, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. I'd be speaking the truth. He, he's told the truth relative to this trip to the third heaven to paradise. Paul actually did go. He's not lying like the false teachers were. It was not a deceitful claim. In, in Paul's case, this is actual fact. This happened. Nevertheless, he is unwilling to do it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, Paul says, don't judge me by visions and revelations or a trip to heaven or some ecstatic experience. No, judge me by what you see and hear. Judge me by how I live before you and my preaching. That's what Paul says. Man, if people would only employ this today, false teachers would go away very quickly. Ignore all of their claims. Judge them by what you see and hear, how they live, what their doctrines are. That would correct a ton of error. Now, this experience of Paul's was actually a really big deal. There aren't a lot of people who've ever been taken on a trip to the third heaven. That's uncommon. And yet Paul says that he shares it reluctantly. Though it was true, and it would trump the claims of the pseudo-apostles. Nevertheless, he shares it, but in the third person, but not without a purpose. Paul has a purpose in sharing it. I actually skipped one phrase purposely here in this verse. Paul says he would not boast on his own behalf except in my weaknesses, Paul writes. So this entire section about going to the third heaven, it was really just introductory to the rest of this text. He's just getting us to where we are now in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And this, this verse, or, or couple of verses uh, that we're going to look at here, has received a lot of attention from scholars trying to figure out what this thorn in the flesh was, as if that is the important thing. Look, if it was the important thing, we would know what it is. D.A. Carson offers a number of various explanations that have been given. He, he says this, quote, Explanations are legion. That, that means a lot. Explanations are legion and include malaria, a serious eye condition, feelings of guilt, depression owing to Paul's failure to convert his own fellow Jews, Jewish persecution, epilepsy, a marked 
speech defect, some sort of continued temptation, and many more. End quote. He's right, because I read of a number of other explanations in various commentaries that I read this week. Listen, bottom line, we don't know what this thorn was, and it doesn't matter. It does not matter. I do think we can be confident Paul was not born with whatever this is. This was not a birth defect. This was something that was given to him after his trip to heaven with a purpose that he would not become conceited. It seems to have been physical, but that could have included Jewish persecution or even these false teachers following him around from place to place to place. If you pin me down, that's what I would say. I think that this thorn in the flesh probably is. But whatever it was, it was painful and maybe even humiliating. But God had a purpose in it. To keep Paul from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Obviously, speaking of this great revelation that we have just studied about. I mean, this is the greatest of revelations being, being carried up to be in the very presence of God Himself. It doesn't, there is no greater revelation. And yet He was given this thorn to keep Him from becoming conceited. And God gave him this thorn, whatever it was, the messenger of Satan, it says, to keep him humble. Listen, I know Satan is being used by God here, but look, Satan would have loved nothing more than for Paul to have become a, an arrogant jerk, a, a megalomaniac. It was God's work to keep him humble, even though God used Satan to do so. So understand, as we've seen in the, in the book of Job, so Satan can only go so far. He is limited. And then by God's design, to accomplish God's purpose, that ought to give us all comfort to know that Satan has not been given a leash to do whatever he wants to do to any of us. Nevertheless, Paul prayed, verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul prayed. It says here that he pleaded with the Lord three times that it should leave me. And it didn't. God did indeed answer Paul's prayer just not in the way that Paul had hoped when he prayed the prayer. No, God purposed this thorn for Paul's good. And so he didn't take it away. That's hard for us to fathom, and yet that is the case. But God did give Paul insight to why he was not taking it away. He told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, we often talk about saving grace. And that's good. We ought to. There, there is saving grace. But grace is more than that. Grace keeps us. Enables us. Lifts us up when we need Lifting, God's grace sustains us even through the difficulties that this life may throw our way. And God's grace was sufficient to get Paul 
through this thorn, this trial. And then the kicker, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is truly manifested when we are at our weakest point. If that does not encourage you on your lowest day, it should. This entire explanation caused Paul to view this thorn in the flesh way differently than he had before. He had prayed to have it removed, but now notice this next part, about halfway through verse 9 there. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul, Paul was not a masochist. Like, he, he, didn't, he didn't enjoy pain. I mean, that's not what's going on. That said, he, he's given insight here. And he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the man who abhorred boasting here says he does it all the more gladly, but not of his personal accomplishments. No. Of all of these calamities that had come his way. If the power of Christ is found in weakness, Paul says, let me be weak. Again, he's not desiring pain. He didn't enjoy it. But he learned how to face it, how to deal with it, how to see a positive in it. He was enabled to view his weaknesses through a different lens, we might say. They were not, by the way, for the sake of Paul. He says they were for the sake of Christ. That's the key. That's the key. Remember all those hardships we looked at last week? We spent a while looking at all of those. He's bringing them back up here, but with a twist. He says... For the sake of Christ them, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Lord, help me face my own calamities just like this. Looking to your strength rather than trying to fight my own battles and my own power. I need to learn what Paul learned. Because when I'm weak, then I am strong. In his classic book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper actually references this very passage. And here's what he writes, quote, Here's the design. Jesus said to Paul in pain, To all of us who treasure Him, the Lord, more than pain-free living. You hear what Piper said? We treasure the Lord more than pain-free living. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He goes on, Many professing Christians would get angry at this design. They might even scream, I don't care about your power being perfected. I am in pain. If you love me, get me out of this. That was not Paul's response. 
Paul had learned what love is. Love is not Christ making much of us or making life easy. Love is doing what He must do at a great cost to Himself and often to us to enable us to enjoy making much of Him forever. So Paul responds to Christ's design Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, end quote. If you've never read that book, it would be worth your time. Don't waste your life by John Piper. That's actually true wisdom. Maybe you have migraines. Maybe you have an eating disorder. Maybe you have leukemia, cancer, hearing problem, anxieties, a, a bad back. Maybe you struggle with serious allergies and sinus issues. You have family problems, personal conflict at work. Maybe you're in an abusive relationship at home or, or somewhere else. It doesn't matter. Listen to me. God knows all about it. And He has a purpose for it. Romans 28, 28. You probably got this hanging in your home somewhere. We know that for those who love God, how many things? All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Paul penned those words too, by the way, in Romans, and he learned that from experience. Maybe there's a good explanation of that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again this week. I do not know how the prosperity gospel people deal with any of this right here. It can't be in their Bible or something. Obviously, clearly, without a doubt in the world, God does not always will to relieve suffering. And without debate, sometimes it's actually part of His plan to mature us. This thorn was for Paul's good. God gave it to him on purpose to keep him from being conceited. Paul, an apostle, full of faith, prayed three times to have it removed, and God said, no. That doesn't square with the prosperity movement. Nevertheless, this thorn revealed the validity of Paul's faith. It revealed Paul's integrity. It served a purpose. It made him stronger. Did you know the Bible actually says that, that God uses our trials to perfect us? James chapter 1. Listen to how crazy James was. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And can you imagine James going to Paul when he's got this thorn in the flesh and say, just count it joy, Paul. That's what he's saying. James is just as inspired as Paul. James is actually not crazy. He's just in touch with the truth. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James's explanation of trials and problems here in this life. Listen, the value system of those in the health and wealth movement today are precisely 100% opposite from James and Paul and God. To them, suffering 
pain, trials, whatever, they're all just the result of a lack of faith. That was not the issue here with Paul. No. To Paul, God uses sufferings to make our faith stronger, to mature us. By the way, God works through weak vessels. And that's what He's chosen to do. Paul actually says so to this same church in the first canonical letter that we studied, 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There is a perfect connection between that passage and what we've studied here in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul understood that and he saw himself in it. I think when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul is often explaining about God working through the weak, we think he's just stating doctrinal truth. But when we get to 2 Corinthians 12, we find out that Paul was actually writing about Paul. He saw himself that that way. Now let me ask you this question. In in all seriousness, are you more likely to listen to a man who says he has a word from the Lord, something specially given to him, or a man that simply preaches the text of Scripture consistently, accurately, to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, to train you in order to complete you and equip you for every good work. Which do we prefer? I mean, the religious landscape in America says that we prefer the first. But that's not what Paul brings out here in this text. Guys, listen, we're not here for a worship experience. Now the key word there is experience. We are here to worship. We're not here for an experience. Scores and scores of Christians come to church for that reason. And the experience opens the door to false teachers, just like it did here in Corinth. Now listen, let me me be very clear. Please do not misquote me. I am not saying you should not be moved during worship. I'm not. Songs should move you. Prayers should should move you. The preaching of the truth of Scripture should move you. And I pray for those things to occur. Nevertheless, Paul is crystal clear here. Forget my visions and my experiences that I had. I'm only telling you this because I'm forced to. Don't give this trip to heaven a second thought, Paul says. Instead, watch how I live and listen to what I say. Paul isn't making this up. Jesus actually said quite clearly, quote, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 12. The supposed experiences of the false teachers then do not trump the blasphemies that they were teaching. By the way, amazingly, by God's design, the immediate following verse in Matthew 12 says, 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You know what Jesus said. It's an, ad- an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Well, the primary application there in Matthew 12 was to that unbelieving generation of Jews that ultimately turned Jesus over to the Romans and, and murdered him. But the truth remains that sign-seeking, experience-seeking, emotion-driven worship and not word-driven worship is not something that we should be looking for. We have to begin with truth. By the way, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, sends us in the world to teach what? Everything that Jesus commanded. We are to teach His words. And we find that here in the Bible. John MacArthur, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, writes this, quote, The true measure of a man of God does not lie in his claims of visions and experiences with God or the force of his personality, the size of his ministry, his educational degrees, or any other human criteria. A man of God is marked by how much he has suffered in the war against the kingdom of darkness, how concerned he is for people, how humble he is, and how accurately he handles the supernatural revelation found in God's Word. End quote. Amen. Amen. That's what the false teachers in Corinth were lacking. They were teaching another Jesus, a different gospel. They looked the part, they sounded the part, but they weren't real Christian teachers. And that's why Paul makes the argument he does in this text here this morning. There's nothing good coming from this discussion of visions and revelations. God has given us His Word. Well, let me just close with this. It's amazing how much this connects with what Jacob closed talking to you about. But God's Word has one author, so we shouldn't be surprised. Who are you boasting in? Now listen, I realize we're at church, and right now you are thinking theologically. And most of you probably thought, well, I'm boasting in God. But look, I don't think any of us do that without hesitation all the time, myself included. Paul kept this vision to himself 14 years concerned that people might make too much of Him and not nearly enough of Christ. Compare that to what we often see these days. I I mean, compare that to yourself, your your own attitude. Is Is it my way or the highway? Or does it understand and relate to others? Or how about this? Compare Paul's desire in this text to your social media account. At least those of you that have social media, that ought to convict all of us. Of course, for those of you that don't have social media and you're looking over your shoulder at someone else, that is not the only way that we boast of ourselves today. All of us need to hear this and learn from this lesson. What about the way that you view yourself spiritually compared to other blood-bought people? What about the way that we view the church here In comparison to others, do we think we are the elite of the elite, a church with so few problems that it doesn't even really matter? 
or do we gather to learn the Word of God so that we can work together and mature one another? And we can leave here and go into the community with the gospel. Is that what we want? Let me put it this way. Is is our goal as a church to promote ourselves or to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ? Most catechisms begin with this question. I, I was looking at Spurgeon's catechism this week, and so I copied from it, but it's almost exactly like the rest. Question one. What is man's chief end? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is true of Sovereign Grace Baptist. That is true of us as a group, and it's true of all of us individually as we leave and go out into the community. We are to be a light where we've been planted. We do not exist to glorify ourselves, to boast in ourselves, to make ourselves something. I I, I searched a few catechisms and never found one that says man's chief end is to boast in himself. No, it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when we are boastful, not only are we very unlike Paul, we are actually working against our chief end. Let us learn from this glorious text. Stand with me if you will. Darren, will you dismiss us please?